Akroiso. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the CC4 Museum of Welsh Cricket Podcasts. I'm Stephen Hedges. This week, our Jan Gray has found another ex-Glamorgan player to chat about his life in cricket. So, without much more ado, let's hand you over to Jan. Okay, our guest today is Michael Cann, who played for Glamorgan between 1986 and 1991, while also playing first-class cricket in South Africa. Since his retirement, he has led a successful business career and now is president of Cardiff Cricket Club. We're going to ask him about his life in and outside of cricket. So, hello, Michael. Uh, hi there. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, thank you for coming on. So, uh, what got you interested in cricket as a child and do you have any early memories of playing the game? Yeah, I do, actually. Um, what really got me interested, it was, it was the long, hot summer of 1976. I started watching a little bit on TV, but then I went down to see Glamorgan play Sussex in 1976. I'll never forget it. Um, in those days, we used to, uh, we didn't pay to get in. We used to go to the hole in the back of the stand. Uh, and as an 11, 12-year-old, I nipped in there, watched my first ever game of cricket on the Saturday, saw this guy, Tony Gregg, saw the likes of Alan Jones, and from that moment on was gripped, absolutely gripped. And actually, Glamour won the match, because uh, I then came back on the Monday and Tuesday and watched uh, a guy called Tony Allen bowl them out in the bowl Sussex out in the second innings. And do you think your formative experiences of cricket influence the way you experience it in the future? Oh, I think everything you do as a youngster coming through whatever system you come through informs. Um, I didn't really play any club cricket for another four years after that. I was quite a late developer at 14, but we used to play, we used to play in the street. You know, we'd have uh, on a lamppost and I can still, uh, you know, I still remember playing with a tennis ball if you over garden and out. Uh, you know, you, you wouldn't be able to bat. So I used to uh, keep her on the deck, as they'd say, and still remember, I could still play off the hip because there's a little bit of space back at a square uh, on the leg side in my street. But that's where it started. And then I, I sort of came and got involved with Cardiff from the age of about 14. And do you think playing street cricket and things like that uh, influenced the, your attitude towards the game going forward? Well, it was competitive. And where I was from, uh, you know, you get, the odd, you get the odd fight. There's no doubt about it. Uh, maybe that builds a bit of resilience for when you're facing a new ball, but I, I'm, I'm not really sure it made it made any difference. What it did do is uh, it's made me fall in love with the game at an early age, and uh, it was that love for the game that, uh, that that really projected me. I think I could think of nothing else, and that's all I wanted to do. So then you joined Cardiff Cricket Club, and how did that influence the path of your career? Well, it was absolutely magic because, I mean, from, from a place like San Romney, you wouldn't normally be exposed to uh, the, the big infrastructure that was Cardiff Athletic Club. Uh, so, so for me, I was introduced by a school teacher of mine called Ken Williams, who was a, a previous uh, a Cardiff captain, actually. Magnificent guy, still involved in the club now. Uh, we see him occasionally, which is wonderful. Uh, and he, uh, he sort of... Uh, introduced me to Cardiff, went down to the Nets, and there was a guy called Howard Slade, uh, who was the then club captain, and he uttered those immortal words, welcome to Cardiff Cricket Club, that, uh, that I keep telling everybody about these days when I meet them and say, welcome to Cardiff Cricket Club, and those five words changed my life. Uh, and then suddenly you find yourself in a, in a situation where lots of people are there to help you. You don't realise at the time. But an enormous amount of people were there to, to help you and they want to see you do well. And it was quite, from that perspective, made, you know, coming from Clan Romney and going to play for Cardiff, Cardiff Furs as it was at, at that time, was just, uh, was just a magical experience for me. And what are your best memories from playing for Cardiff as a junior? Oh, God, there's too many to mention. Some, some great ones, really. Um, 
I had a breakthrough innings at under 15 level of a 150 against St. Fagans. Uh, I remember coming across Hugh Morris, who was playing for Cardiff in the under 17 team. And uh, he was just such a super player that I thought, wow, it'd be nice to be able to aspire to that level. Uh, and, and he, you know, we played a little bit together. And then, um, you know, you, you play in the third team and then you see maybe one day I can play in the first team or the second team. And, and as you come through the ranks, you, you very quickly uh, develop a little bit of uh, competitive edge, you know, to try to push yourself on. But at the same time, there's this enormous amount of support. And I think it's sometimes undervalued in the clubs, uh, particularly in South Wales, maybe, or particularly across, elsewhere in the country. The support you have is, um, it's not explicit, but it's always there. So guys, your captains, so I played on some wonderful captains at Cardiff, likes of Howard Slade, who I've mentioned, uh, Paul Good, who's a fantastic cricketer, Tony Caudle, when he came back to Cardiff from Glamorgan, uh, just lend you so much support and, and give you a push. And I'm pleased to say that still continues now at Cardiff. It really does. And, and you know, just guys running Sunday teams, like a guy called Tony Edwards, who I didn't bowl too much, but, you know, if you batted on Saturday, you bowled on Sunday. And, and so it gave me an opportunity to learn. And over those couple of, couple of three years, you know, my, my cricket progressed enormously. And, and, and also, you know, you make lifelong friends. So wonderful time. And how did you move from playing club cricket through the levels up to playing for Glamorgan eventually? Well, it was a great time, actually, because Tom Cartwright had just set up um, quite an elaborate coaching structure where he was coaching a lot of coaches and he was dealing a lot with these sort of uh, young cricketers coming through. So I was part of quite a, quite a cohort at under 16, sort of 17 level. You know, people like uh, Steve Watkins, Steve Maddock, Tony Cotty, uh, who else, you know, a bit later, Steve James and Adrian Dale. And, and, and these, this cohort of, of cricketers, uh, Philip North was in there. There was a great cohort in, in Gwent at the time. Um, you know, it was a really a good time for a lot of young Welsh cricketers coming through. And I was part of that group. So a lot of competition for places. And I came through the schoolboy system. Uh, very well run. I think I think at that time, our coaching structures locally were as good as anywhere. Uh, and at Cardiff, I was pushed uh, and supported. And um, and sort of progressed through under-16s into under-19s, where I played a couple of years. And then um, you hope and dream you'll just get noticed. Or if you don't, you try to get noticed uh, by the people who matter at Glamorgan. And uh, and then it's a question of if the opportunity does come around, can you can you grab it? And so what were your best experiences playing for Glamorgan? Well, obviously, uh, personally for me, it was uh, the one first-class 100 I got for Glamorgan. Uh, was uh, something I look back on fondly. It was at Cardiff at Sophia Gardens, which, which was my club ground in those days, so it was wonderful. You know, my first-class debut at, at Essex was, was fantastic. And, you know, starting to play with international superstars, you know, that you dream of playing against. So people like uh, Ravi Shastri and then subsequently to, to bat with Viv Richards was just a remarkable experience. People used to watch CFAX in those days to, to, to follow the results, you know, and there's also a dial-in that you could phone into run by a guy called Tom Oldman, a lovely, lovely fella, uh, and, and he would commentate on the game and, and no one would come and watch us except if they thought Viv was batting. And uh, I remember playing at, uh, against Cardiff, at Cardiff against Leicestershire and uh, suddenly the crowd had grown maybe to three, four, five thousand for a championship game. And uh, it was quite clear they come to uh, come to see Viv bat, not me. And um, uh, I still remember batting with him and thinking, oh my God, whatever I do, 
don't don't run him out because uh, the Beal sales will be effective. So the little memories like that were, were wonderful. I shouldn't also underestimate the um, the friendships and the camaraderie that, that you develop, particularly as a Glamorgan player in those days, I think. You know, for me, when I when I still see people, it's so nice to, to see them in the past players and, and everything. But I think there was something special about being a part of that cohort, but being a, a Cardiff boy and a Welshman playing for Glamorgan. Uh, it, it really felt very, very proud. And the members were so kind to me as a local boy. They, I could feel when I went out to bat, they wanted me to do well and succeed if you're walking out of St. Helens or at, at Cardiff. So I think they're, they're the sort of memories that, that sort of I have now uh, beyond the sort of personal, you know, the odd game where I did rather well. So there are obviously some very good experiences there, but professional sport can famously be very cutthroat. And how did you deal with that, the ups and downs? Well, I had a, I thought I had a, I was progressing rather well till about 1989. It seems like a hell of a long time ago now. Uh, and I had my, a decent season for the Morgan. Uh, I've just under 900 runs. There were two, two, two or three games left and I got left out of the side. Uh, Hugh had stood down as captain. He was a wonderful captain, but still very young at that time. Uh, and Alan Butcher t- took over. Slight change in emphasis, so I was sort of left out. So I didn't manage to get my 1,000 runs, which could have put me on a trajectory. And then uh, in 1990 and 1991, opportunities became less. Possibly my form going into 91 wasn't, wasn't so great. Uh, and that led to the inevitable sort of uh, uh, not, being, not being offered a, a contract at the end of 1991. It was a time, actually, when a lot of guys were released. I think there were seven or eight of us released that year. Uh, people like Ian Smith and Mark Davis and um, I think John Derrick at the time, people like that in the, in the first part of his career. Uh, but but I've no regrets about that. There's an inevitable end. I think uh, at the time as well, my South African career was 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 going quite well. I'd scored a first class hundred for Free State uh, in South Africa prior to being released by Glamorgan. But the two never quite dovetailed uh, and I never progressed possibly as, as, as much as I could have done or would have hoped to have done at the time. So tell us about your experience of playing cricket in South Africa. Well, it was a, it was a fascinating and remarkable time. Uh, very clearly, apartheid was coming to an end, but the restrictions on players going to South Africa were still in place. Uh, we had a, a guy called Cory Van Sile, who was uh, one of Glamorgan's overseas professionals. As a matter of interest, he was allocated to Cardiff to play his club cricket, so got to know Corey quite well. Uh, and he sort of, um, it, it was after I'd just graduated uh, from Swansea University. So it was a question of, um, you know, what do I do in the winter? And uh, he sort of said, in those days, all the young players used to used to go abroad and, and, and play to, to develop your game and, and, you know, have an enjoyable life doing it at that, at that age. So, you know, you're, you're 22 years of age and Corey says, would I like to come and coach at Free State University? as a part of his coaching setup. So I said, I'd be absolutely delighted to come. And, you know, they, they very kindly would pay an airfare and find you a flat and all these sort of things. And, um, and, and I got there, you know, unbeknown to me at the time, Free State was an emerging young province. It had just been promoted to what is then called the A-section of South African cricket and was establishing itself as a real force and had some fantastic young, real young players, Alan Donald, Hanty Cronier, Nicky Boyer, Nico Pretorius, uh, and, and a whole raft of local players who'd come through. This was before they all achieved huge international fame. And, and I found myself sort of joining their provincial practices early on. Uh, I bowled off spin, uh, not, not so much as I, I did later in my career uh, in those days. So they were, they were just quite happy to have me at Nets 
plugging away, bowling off spin, getting to know and getting involved. So I, I sort of got involved in, in free state cricket uh, and ended up running their, their Colts while I was there. And then um, in the second year, as a part of their progression, their, their B team was elected to the B section of the Curry Cup. Uh, as it was in those days. And so they asked me to captain uh, the, the team and run first-class team in, in the B section as it was constructed. So I find myself in a situation whereby I'm struggling to get, I'm pushing hard and hopefully trying to get a game in the Morgan first team in 1990, 1991. And then in parallel, having quite a successful first-class career in uh, what was the B section of South African cricket, but still... Still very good, and and that and that went very well. I got a hundred of my first class debut out there against uh, Greek Alarm West, as I remember, in Virginia, which is in the old. Uh, for those of you interested, is in, in what we call the old gold fields of South Africa, where they mine clearly all the gold, and uh, and things progress progressed very well. And and at the time, I was then bowling more and more because there was not a lot of finger spin in South Africa around that time, and the wickets were quite nice to bowl on in that. In that you always got a bit of bounce. Now, coming from South Wales, where the wickets never really bounced so high, I quite enjoyed the fact that you could bowl and, and maybe beat the outside edge and the inside edge, get a bit of bounce. And they generally turned because they were firm and hard, but they were they were dry. So my, my bowling was coming into it more and more uh, as a first-class cricketer at the time, which was which was really enjoyable. After I, after I, I left Free State after two years because I was offered uh, offered the uh, overseas players role at Greekland West is a very small province. Um, in, in some ways, uh, not unlike Glamorgan would have felt uh, maybe in the 70s with, you know, simple ground and small office supporting a professional and semi-professional setup. So I, I joined them. They'd sort of turned a blind eye to me as, a, as an overseas player because I'd been around a little bit and got sort of known. And I'd also um, learned to speak Afrikaans. And, and so I sort of just sort of got known as a, Canny, you know, and Canny is playing, and nobody asked whether I was a local player or a South African player. So, in, in the more general sense, I started to play as a as a as a, as a as a local player, and nobody questioned overseas allocation. So, so off I went and played, and uh, ended up cap- captaining Griffiths for a couple of years, uh, which is probably one of the, the highlights of my South African experience. It's great to captain a first class province, and is at a time when. I was struggling, this is around 91, struggling to get into the Glamorgan team. You know, the writing was on the wall. The, the top order had re-established itself. Steve James was coming up. Robert Croft was, was really starting to come through. Adrian Dale, Tony Cottin. You know, I would a little bit squeezed out. And, but, but I really enjoyed my career in South Africa. I enjoyed captain in a province and, and, and all the things that go with it. And I had got a few hundreds and we did, we did reasonably well. Strong enough for us to lodge uh, uh, an A-section application. To the Curry Cup as it was in those days and it was a privilege to me to lead on that. Uh, I was appointed general manager of Greekwiz so I wore a couple of hats as I said it was a, a small operation, small office uh, uh, and uh, so I became general manager of Greek Land West uh, and it was just a fabulous time of learning. We were sort of sponsored and funded and looked after by De Beers so we were given a ground by De Beers and so as general manager, I had oversight of the cricket and the ground in those days for, for the two or three years that I did that. There was another team called Impalas, which played in the Benson Edges Night Series, as it was in those days. Now, Benson Edges Night Series cricket was absolutely vital for the survival of South African cricket through the 80s. Obviously, they were in isolation, but they, uh, they were playing under lights from about 1983, 84 onwards. 
uh, first of all, on football grounds, and then they put lights on Newlands and, and the Wanderers and all these other places. Uh, so, I, so I got, I got as, as a Greek player, I got selected to play for the Impalas in the day-night series uh, out there. And uh, Let me tell you, the lights in those days were not like the lights they have now. These were like, not quite car park lights, but, you know, sort of really not great lighting. We played this, uh, this day-night cricket, and it was great. And huge crowds, 15,000, 20,000 people, because that was the lifeblood of South African cricket, because they had no international cricket at the time. And, and so, and I was reasonably successful at that. Again, again so this dichotomy of around having this, this struggling career with Glamorgan and then this sort of more successful career in South Africa. And after I left in 91, I, I stayed in South Africa. Till, till, after I left Glamorgan in 91, I stayed in South Africa. 1994 and then possibly the most reflectively the most fascinating experience was being involved in the integration of non-white and white cricketers it was defined in those days um, and I was general manager group so we held a held a range of negotiations of how to integrate cricket locally uh, in Kimberley in the northern Cape of South Africa discussions with ANC and what was then also known as soccer which is the alternative yeah, with the, the, the sort of non-white um, organization running running cricket in South Africa and, uh, and and they were difficult they were difficult discussions you know there was there were people who had been hard done by and other people who wanted things done in different ways and and we sort of navigated through that uh, I remember discussing with the ANC and what the future cricket in the Northern Cape needs to look like for them to support uh, the province that we were uh, creating uh, we went from Greekland West Cricket Union to Greekland West Cricket Board, which was the, the the sort of nomenclature being used for provinces in, in those days. And, and that was a fascinating experience, a really fascinating experience to be involved in and, and successful, I think. And not down to me, by any stretch of imagination, but by the willingness of, of people from different cultures to come together uh, for, for, for the good of the game. I myself joined... Uh, an non-white club. I learned actually the, the whole expression of non-white versus white. In in all communities, there were very very diverse cultures and different teams, and, and no different from any other cricket setup in the world. Uh, so I, I I joined joined a, a club called Diamond Park. Fantastic club, great ethos. People have been playing cricket for years in the most difficult circumstances. Some fantastic old people like A. B. Williams and. Uh, guy called Brian Williams who played, who went on to play for Greekwas, and a young lad at that time called Finley Brooker who went on to play provincial cricket for many years afterwards. So and it was a real force for good for the game in South Africa. So it was, uh, it, was a real, it was a real pleasure for me to be involved. And when I look back on those times, I, you know, they were quite remarkable times that people probably haven't seen uh, and aren't aware of so much. And, um, you know, and, 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 just, just a magical experience. As a, and as a young guy, I was 26 years of age at the time and getting involved in all those discussions with Ali Bakr and the local ANC and, and how to integrate cricket uh, on non-racial grounds. So um, a fabulous experience. Uh, I, I came back to Cardiff in, in 1994 and, and that was the end of my, my professional career, which all in all lasted 10 years, which uh, was, uh, was, was a Fabulous, fabulous experience, it really was. So before we move on to your life post-cricket, I'd just like to ask that given Cricket South Africa's social justice and nation-building hearings for racial equality 
hearings that have been going on recently in South Africa. How do you reflect upon the successes and the failings of that integration period that you were a part of? So do I think mistakes were made on integration? I don't think so. I think people were where they were, and we have to see this as a continuum. And the start point was was to get uh, the governance right and to ensure people had opportunities to play at a higher level. That's obviously translated into something else. Um, it's a bit sad about the difficulties that they face now, but you know, one, one generation or two generations is, is not gonna fix three or 500 years of history. It, it really, I don't think it, it would. So would have we done anything differently back in, uh, in the early nineties? No, because I think it was very much a process of getting to know each other and, and building trust. Clearly some of that uh, integration pace has, hasn't been fast enough for, for many sections of society. And you know, quotas can have a role, uh, but they can also work against uh, everything else. Uh, I don't think Colpac helped the situation, by the way. In fact, Colpac wasn't a force for good for South African cricket to, to have a, a backdoor migration uh, of some very, very talented people. The game will always look out for itself and its people and its community. Uh, and it'll, it'll take turns as it always has uh, in directions which are sometimes uncomfortable. But it'll always come back to the greater good, I believe, because it's the, it's the best game in the world. And, and what it does is bring communities and friends together to play a game they love. And I think while that, while that ethos prevails, I think it'll survive and come through it. So after your playing career, uh, you returned to the UK. And what did you do then? Ah, well, there we go. I had to get a job. What a disaster. So, so I, you know, I was a biochemistry graduate from Swansea and I, I joined the pharmaceutical industry. Did an international role for a while where I, I run a, a division of pharmaceutical company supplying veterinary products to Africa. As in middle management in the pharmaceutical company uh, in the UK. Uh, and I've had all this experience and I thought, well, I've had no real formal business training. Uh, I really need to get some foundations into myself rather than just trying to wing it, if you like. So I, I enrolled in an MBA at Warwick Business School, uh, and it took a couple of years to do that. I graduated in 2004. I went off to work for Abbey National for a couple of three years in the city. Uh, and I joined a company called, called Activists, which um, I essentially run a, a large division of their business, um, supplying generic medicines uh, in the UK. Uh, for those of you who don't know, generic medicines are the copies. They're the cheap versions of the expensive stuff. Uh, so the division I run, we had a big manufacturing site and uh, I looked after about 200 million packs of medicine supplied to the NHS every year. And that was, uh, did that for about nine or 10 years, uh, which is the sort of core of my career. During that time, I, um, I got involved in, um, you know, the relationship with the government because we're a large producer of medicines and I became chairman of uh, British Generics Manufacturers Association. Uh, which is a trade body that deals with the relationship between manufacturers and the government. I chaired that for, for a couple of years and, and did various negotiations, meeting with ministers and ensuring that the medicine supply chain was intact and all, all the things that go with that. And negotiated a, uh, the reimbursement system with the government. So that, that's the main part of, of my career. Now I'm uh, non-exec, uh, part of a management board of a large chain of pharmacies and also distributors of medicines and um, keeps me busy, busy enough, but it also enables me now time to do to do other things. You mentioned your degree at Swansea and then at uh, Warwick. 
it seems to me that you're you're very proud of your education. Could you explain the the importance of your education in your life? Yeah, absolutely, I can. Yes, I came from Sam Ramley, and they, you know, my, my my sort of catchphrase would be, "You can take the boy out of Sam Ramley, but you can't take the Sam Ramley out of the boy." You know, and sort of it was always instilled with me: if you're gonna if you're gonna sort of get on, you're not gonna do it because um, because you have access to uh, to the networks of, of other, other people from other backgrounds, you're going to have to do it sort of hard way. So for me, it was always something that if I'm going to show myself and enable myself to market myself, uh, then then education would be the way to do it. You know, it started with, I mean, originally I was going to do medicine. Okay. But because, uh, you know, my mum would, would have been extremely proud. Uh, but um, with cricket taking off, I, I thought, no, biochemistry is a better thing. And then, and then when I felt my career needed something else or I needed an additional foundation, uh, then I felt it was right to go back to, to university, to business school and, and re-establish myself. And it just seemed to me to be the right thing to do, to, to show others and to show myself that I have the capability to, to operate in those arenas. And you do need a, a, a foundation to be able to perform at the executive level in corporations. Um, no different from sport, you know, you, if you can't, if you find grip stance and pickup very difficult, well, you know, flicking it through mid-wicket is not going to be that easy for you, you know. Uh, so, you, you, you know, I, I do feel that lifelong learning type ethos is, is, is the right way because you can then adapt and develop. It's interesting that the Professional Cricket Association, the PCA, now invest a lot of money and time and effort into cricketers to enable them to do the very stuff I'm talking about. I sort of stumbled on it through my own personal drive and, and, and need to succeed, I guess. And you mentioned education being like cricket. Has your professional cricket career influenced the way your post-cricketing career has gone? Definitely. You know, when you've worked in a management team or been in a cricket dressing room, the, the feeling can be very much the same. You know, we're actually in, in a competitive situation. Do we have the knowledge, do we have the expertise, the skills, the experience to be able to execute on what we want to do? And actually, you can almost hear the chief exec and the captain of a cricket team, you know, giving the same sort of team talk sometimes. So I felt that actually there's a lot of similarities between a business career. And I'd always encourage sportsmen to, 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 uh, to do that, to do the education, mix the two. And, and a number of people have now. Uh, and, and actually, we are, as, as sportsmen, because we're competitive, because we strive, you know, that, that is exactly what businesses, successful businesses look for, you know, that additional drive, that additional ambition uh, to do very well. So I, I, think, uh, I think there's a lesson for all of us in as sportsmen. So you said you started to wind down your professional career. What do you currently spend your time doing? Ah, yeah, I've had a renaissance, you see. This is it. This is why I've put this shirt on. Um, so a couple of years ago, uh, chairman of, Cardiff Fermier, David Kirtley, he said, uh, he said, Kenny, uh, listen, we've had a chat the committee. He said, we'd like you to become president of Cardiff. And I was literally driving across somewhere in, in Oxfordshire and I nearly pulled over and crashed my car. And I said, good Lord, I'm absolutely honoured. So, so I got heavily back involved with the club again and we had the most wonderful dinner uh, celebrated the 200th anniversary of of, of cricket in Cardiff and uh, Cardiff's association with that. And uh, saw all my old friends and we had the, you know, people came back from different generations. It was a wonderful dinner because we had people from the 1950s who played for Cardiff, people from the 1960s, 
the 1970s and 1980s and 90s, 2000s and onwards. So there's all these people, and it's actually fantastic. Oh, well, why, why have I stopped playing cricket? You know, why, why have I stopped? So there's another guy called David Ricketts. Most people in South Wales know David Ricketts. Um, he's uh, he's an absolute icon of organising things, and he's the captain of Cardiff Thirds. And my career, career right back from the start of this interview, started in Cardiff Thirds in 1980. He said, well, come back and have a game for the Thirds. So I said, yeah, I'd, why not? I'd love to. I had played village cricket uh, where I live uh, and I've been living for the last 15 years or so. Um, so, uh, uh, but I wouldn't call it competitive cricket in any way, shape or form. So uh, I said, yeah, I'd love to come back. And uh, lo and behold, I found myself fitting, well, I had to buy some new whites, let's face it, you know, a different shaped body now. I went to play for Cardiff Thirds at Abercunnan, uh, which is up the, uh, the Cunnan Valley. Uh, and um, I, I, I've never been so nervous in my life before a cricket match, you know, it's like I haven't played much for 20 years and uh, here I was opening the bowling uh, against uh, against Avon Cullen and a, a lad called Matthew Taylor is opening the bowling for them and he he's an ex-Pondy pre-professional rugby player, funnily enough. Anyway, uh, second ball, I, 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 I crack it straight to, straight to Keller Court and, uh, and had waited 20 years for, for a second ball nord. But what it did do was um, was bring me back to the, the cricket in the fold. So, uh, my renaissance, as I mentioned, people have to fall in love with the game. People fall, fall in love with the game again, and it's been absolutely delightful. Uh, so much so, um, I played a whole season for Cardiff this year. We got promotion, the Cardiff Thirds did, uh, which has been fantastic. And also, um, I, I ended up playing for Wales over 50s, uh, which is a huge force for good, actually. What it does is keeps a lot of good cricketers involved in the game and playing in the game uh, and playing in the lower sides of big clubs and helping the youngsters through. Just playing with people who I used to play with back in the day, uh, you know, people like Mark Davis, who was, uh, you know, played for Glamorgan, played for Gloucestershire, actually. Uh, he used to be my old roommate, so he and I are playing for Wales over the 50s. So it's been great to reestablish them. People like Paul Murphy, Ewan Reese, to name a few, who are still fantastic cricketers who I played with, schoolboy and represented cricket in the early 80s. It's a joy to be reconnected with old friends. And I think for me, over, the, over my cricketing and professional career, it's, uh, it's been a case of actually they've been vehicles for friendship because I know we'll spend a lot of time talking about cricket, watching cricket, exchanging views, but, um, and then still having the odd game. So for some um, concluding remarks, you've been involved in... Welsh cricket for a number of decades. How do you see the health of the game in Wales and what do you think about the future? It's an interesting point. That's a, such, such a good question because I think um, I've spent a bit of time talking to quite a lot of people this year, uh, particularly in, in what I would call community clubs. I think uh, we discussed this previously. Community clubs have so much to offer. I'm talking about the, the clubs in the valleys, the, the clubs in, in Swansea, uh, the Cardiff, Newport, which are the larger, larger clubs. They've got such an important role to play, an absolutely vital role to play, not just bringing youngsters through the system and, and getting coaching and that sort of thing, but creating something that is sustainable for cricket and communities because I feel that is such an important role. And those clubs, particularly, I think, in, you know, I talked about Abercunnan and Hopkinstown and other clubs throughout the South Wales Valleys, I think they need a bit more support than they're getting, okay? 
because without those clubs, there will be no cricket in Wales. There is no school now that's going to produce lots of cricket, lots of cricketers. So, so the lifeblood of Welsh cricket evolves around the clubs, and I, and I feel that integration between Wales, the clubs, and Glamorgan needs to be worked on. Certainly, we've got to inspire kids who have so many distractions nowadays to love the game and to enjoy the game and get out of the game the type of pleasure that many of us have had, or maybe professional careers, but that won't be for everybody. And I think we need to work a bit harder than that because it's very difficult, you know, for 13, 14, 15-year-olds to commit. You know, there were far less choice when I grew up. Nowadays, people have a choice to do a million things. So I think we've got to do things like outreach programs and make sure that the stars of Glamorgan and, and, and others uh, have access to these people because sometimes it can feel the professional game is, is, um, is quite distant from the club game these days. When, whereas in my day, it never was. You know, you played for your club, you played for Glamorgan. But then at the same time, I see the likes of Kieran Carlson who you know, lifted the one-day trophy for Glamorgan and, you know, he's gone and taken it to, to, to show us at the club and all those sort of things. So those, there are opportunities there. I think uh, I, th- I think it's a bit sad there aren't more Welsh players, local players playing for Glamorgan at the moment. Uh, but I do know that that uh, there's a lot of investment going on to hopefully turn that around in future. And I would say this: one of the things I experienced in the early '80s going through the system at Glamorgan is um, when um, when when maybe players were, were signed by Glamorgan in those days who maybe were at the end of their career. Uh, it wasn't a question of the fact that they weren't decent cricketers. It wasn't a question of the fact that they didn't have a role to play at Glamorgan or were bad signings. But it did send a message to people like myself that says, actually, you may not be good enough if you're from a Welsh part of Wales. You may not be good enough because actually we're going to continually bring these other players in. And, and so they were good guys. But the, the message wasn't a good one at the time. And I remember a lot of people of my age saying, well, why, why, why feel the need to bring a, a player in at the end of his career? Well, why can't I have the opportunity? And that message can reverberate to young players. It can make them feel like they don't have a place at the table. And I think we have to be very careful on that. And I think the Welsh public would like to see a Welsh team in identity and would tolerate a few years of not doing so well in exchange for that ethos. Uh, Otherwise, you end up with no local connection between the game, county, and the national team. And I know there's a lot of work going into that at the moment, and I'm forever hopeful, and I know Hugh Morris and Matthew Maynard are right behind that. Uh, but that's the one wish I would have for, for the game that I've learned from, from my, my little comeback in the last 12 months. Yeah, that's really nice to hear. Um, thank you very much for speaking with us, Michael. It's been really lovely. Thanks very much, and uh, look forward to seeing you again. Take care, everybody. Many thanks to Jan for bringing us that interview and many thanks also to Mike for making himself available to the podcast. Join us next time when rugby raconteur and all-round Welsh wit Phil Steele is with us. He'll be talking about his association with and love of the game of cricket. He will no doubt give us some more stories about the great game of cricket in the great country of Wales. So join us then. Hoil Vaur. Bye for now.
gynnwys gyda chi stori yw'r hanni gyda ni. Mae croeswch yn gysylltu e-bostiwch mwcpod1921 at gmail.com neu ewch i'n tudalu'n Facebook Museum of Welsh Cricket Podcast neu i'n tudalu'n Twitter at Welsh Cricket Pod. Do you have a story you'd like to share with us? If so, please contact email mwcpod1921 at gmail.com or go to our Facebook page, Museum of Welsh Cricket Podcast, or our Twitter, at Welsh Cricket Pod.